Welcome to Impressionable with me, Becky Lee. This is the podcast which tries to figure out all the ways in which we've been influenced by the world and talks about the legacies we'd like to leave behind. This week, I'm joined by Zenab Mahmood. Zenab is green fashion editor of its Freezing in LA magazine and founder of Ahista Stories. Since 2019, Zenab has been campaigning, creating educational resources on the harmful environmental and human impacts of the fashion industry. She's also been writing for award-winning publications like Galdem and The Guardian on the intersections between fashion, faith, climate and capitalism. In this episode, we talk all about fast fashion, we talk a lot about activism as well, and interestingly, we talk about the influencer. Um, so I really enjoyed that part of the conversation. I just wanted to say before the episode starts, the, epi- the audio episode is kind of echoey, um, so I can only apologise for that, but I'll get it back to normal for the next one. I hope you enjoy this conversation that I had with Zenab and please follow the podcast and continue to rate it five stars. Woo! Thank you everyone. Uh, let's go. Hi everyone and welcome back to Impressionable. This week I'm joined by Zainab Mahmood. Hello. How are you doing? I'm okay. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm really excited to talk to you this week because I've always been interested, well, this is about fast fashion, and I've always been interested in it. A bit of a fashionista, I like to think. But obviously, there's a lot of issues that comes with the consumption, and we're going to get into that all today. But before we begin, could you maybe introduce yourself to people that don't know much about you? Mm-hmm. I'm Zainab Mahmood. I am green fashion editor of It's Freezing in LA magazine. And for three to three and a half years now, I've been doing freelance journalism and making content on social media about the environmental and human impacts of the fashion industry. And I'm also doing a master's in environment politics and development at SOAS. How are you you finding your master's? I'm enjoying it, really enjoying the content. Unfortunately, last term was affected a lot by strikes, Mm. which... I really support, but in terms of the content and just the structure of one module in particular, it kind of messed things up a little bit. But I think in that sense, it's good that I chose to do the degree part-time because I'm less affected than full-time students. Yeah, definitely. Has there been anything particularly that you've learned that you like always tell people about? Um, there hasn't been anything that I've told loads of people about. I think that's because... Yeah. I've been so stuck into it and I recently Mm. submitted my final essays for this academic year. Um, But I think over this summer, because I'm not writing my dissertation and now I've finished with teaching, I think a lot of what I've learned will be kind of lingering with me and I'll be thinking about how to channel it into other things. But one concept slash theory that has really um, piqued my interest is social reproduction. So you probably know because I think you've studied this in your degree, Um, but social reproduction is like all of the processes that keep human life going. Um, And a lot of the literature on it focuses on women's unpaid labor in the household. And I feel like it's given me some vocabulary to kind of articulate things that I already knew or observed in my own home. And that's always really nice when you study something and you um, 
read something that you already know or have observed kind of articulated really well and that can kind of help you contextualize it better or explain it to others better Mm, definitely Uh, I remember learning about that too and how like we reproduce capitalism especially in the home like all of these ideals are passed down and the labor's done primarily by women often teaching their own children like harmful ideas as well and it's like it's no one's fault it's systematic but it's still hard to reckon with right yeah definitely um but the first question i ask everyone is what is something or what has been something that's made an impression on you recently So recently I went to an event where the Palestinian poet and activist Mohammed Al-Kurd was interviewed and read some poetry. I was aware he was a poet, but had mainly engaged with his work by watching clips of his appearances on news channels, where he debates others on the illegal occupation of Palestine. He was quite funny and self-deprecating, which I didn't know before, so that was entertaining. But he also spoke really well about how to talk about and debate sensitive issues and also what I would categorize as the ethics of activism. So he spoke Mm -hmm. about how he's been celebritized as this palatable victim and how he navigates that as well as the romanticization of victimhood, struggle and resistance. So I encourage listeners to engage with his work. Um, I believe that none of us are free until Palestine is free. And I take a lot of inspiration from the Palestinian resistance in my work as well. Oh, 100%. And you know, what's so interesting. I never told you this on our first meeting, but I wrote my undergrad dissertation on the, like the visual politics of fast fashion. So like, and also about how often the photographs that are taken of women in um, factories can like portray a sense of victimhood. And actually they're a lot of them are incredibly empowered by the activism that they take on. And, um, but you're the expert when it comes to activism because that's how I found you. So maybe you could tell everyone a bit about like how you got started, why it was fast fashion that you really wanted to take a stand against. Yeah, first of all, I'm definitely not an expert <laughs> in activism and I personally don't call myself an activist. I think there are certain things that I have done that I would label as activism, but I don't really think I do it enough mm-hmm. or on a large enough scale to call myself an activist. But in terms of where it all got started, when George Floyd was murdered in 2020, there were so many petitions and other digital action resources being circulated online, unlike anything we'd ever seen before or have seen since. And it was really overwhelming. I wanted to set aside some time to go through all of these resources I was coming across and thought others might be doing the same and may want to do it together online, as I think we were still not allowed to gather in groups at that time. I think I started by asking some friends if they wanted to do it over Zoom and then shared something about it on social media. It ended up being a small group of mostly my friends on Zoom going through a Google Doc I had put together with petitions and letter templates relating to anti-racism. And we also discussed what conversations had come up at work and in our social circles about racial injustice around that time. I sensed that everyone was really yearning for that kind of community feeling and was really grateful for it. So when the pay up campaign uh, kind of kicked off, I decided I wanted to host another online session 
my friend Becca referred to the Black Lives Matter one we did as an activism circle, which I love. So I approached Maisha Begum, who does great work calling out fashion brands at Oso Ethical. And we ran an online activism circle going through automatic tweet links and email templates they had made to demand fashion brands pay garment factories for orders they had cancelled in the pandemic. Boohoo had also recently been exposed for forcing garment workers to continue working under lockdown. So we did some digital actions around that and discussed other aspects of the fashion industry. At this point, I'd been posting on Instagram and writing for publications about fashion for about seven months so I had a bit of a following but it's grown a lot since then and I shared a digital action plan a year or so after that in which I paired up educational resources about the fashion industry with simple actions people could take to make a difference and then more recently mainly because COVID has been less of a factor I've been a part of in-person protests against fast fashion brands. Definitely. And we'll go into the more direct forms of action that you've undertaken. But why was, um, because obviously your engagement with activism started with racial injustice. Why do you think that you stuck with um, fashion so much or fast fashion? I still sign petitions and share letter templates for other issues. But yeah, Mm -hmm. my um, public online presence and career is more focused on fashion. I was particularly drawn to exploring the negative impacts of the fashion industry because I've always loved fashion and was interested in the dichotomous way in which fashion looks so fun and empowering on the outside, particularly in how it's marketed to women, but is so ugly behind the scenes. I think over 80% of garment workers worldwide are women and about 2% make a living wage. And the fashion industry uses around 79 billion cubic meters of water per year, which is enough to quench the thirst of 110 million people for an entire year. And I think the fact that most people wear clothes almost all of the time makes education and activism around fast fashion relevant to almost everyone even if some people don't want to hear it and you can kind of trick them into it through more light-hearted and playful content around styling and shopping secondhand which i do sometimes but often it's it's reluctantly because i find some of that content a little bit too superficial but it's still fun to play I love styling myself and and finding fun items of clothing secondhand I completely agree with you with that dichotomy of how fashion so marketed is like fun and you know empowering in many ways for people um but often as you said behind the scenes it's got a big ugly side and I was always struck by um like the value chain of where the money's made it's not ever with the people that put in the labor it's often like in the west right in these like ivory towers far far removed from the people that are making the garments um is this one of the reasons that you decided to engage in direct action or can you talk a bit more about that as well yeah um in terms of why I decided to engage in direct action. I guess I'm quite like solutions focused. Mm. I like to feel like I'm doing something. And going back to what I was saying about not calling myself an activist, 
I don't want to be someone who just talks about issues online, even if I am being helpful in educating my followers on certain issues. I think we need to move beyond just like reading and learning and sharing and talking. So I think that's why I'm drawn to direct action. But to be honest, that's quite like instinctive. It's not like I sat down and thought about like what I want to do to change things. And although some direct action can be quite nerve wracking and often time consuming for me at least it's not something that I'm doing on a weekly or monthly basis um I think it's rare for a particular issue to call for protests or other forms of direct action on like such a frequent basis so it doesn't really feel like I'm compromising much but I'll get into the boohoo action which I think is like the main one that you wanted to talk about I think it's really important for getting the message out to people in a way that they can't ignore it because people like choose to follow who they want online and sometimes see stuff on their for you page or whatever about things that they might not have thought they were interested in but it's largely an echo chamber i would say so the first fashion brand boohoo did a panel discussion titled a fashion focus ethical clothing starts with industry collaboration at a sustainable sourcing show called Source Fashion in February. So six of us each had a statement about Boohoo's practices prepared. So um, that included forcing workers to um, continue working under lockdown, like I mentioned before, and also um, poor environmental practices. We sat separately in the panel seating area and stood up one by one to shout out the statements we had prepared and we each got escorted out of the venue by security. We had someone film the whole action for us, but even before those of us who actually participated in the action shared the video or anything else about it online, we were seeing others posting about it on social media or contacting us directly for comment. I don't know how these people even found out about the action so quickly, but clearly we made enough of an impression to cause people who were there to tell others about it and to gain mainstream media coverage, which raises further awareness and can start to taint the reputation of a brand. We later found out that Boohoo's stock price dropped by 7% the day of the action. Uh, I'm not like well versed in economics so i can't really say what that means but obviously their stock price going down the day of our action was not a coincidence and the action did get a lot of mainstream media coverage so it did something oh yeah definitely i thought it was it, it's it's hard one to reconcile because i you see it as so brave but i think as you said before like to you it's intuitive it's not it's not about you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so on that note as well, um, it's been just just over 10 years since the Rana Plaza, Rana Plaza disaster. Um, and I remember reading about it and being completely horrified. But I think a lot of people have reflected on what's changed since then. Um, how do you feel like, yeah, we've done, is, is it any better? In short, no. But to give some background for the listeners who aren't aware, Rana Plaza was a building just outside of Dhaka, Bangladesh, that housed a number of businesses, including garment factories. 
and workers had noticed cracks in the walls and other safety concerns prior to the collapse, but were forced to continue working. The building collapsed in 90 seconds on the 24th of April 2013, causing over 1,100 deaths and 2,600 injuries. A safety pact between brands and unions called the Accord on Fire and Safety had already been in the works in Bangladesh, but its progress kind of accelerated after the Rana Plaza collapse. It has come a long way in the past 10 years, particularly with the expansion to Pakistan and now being known as the International Accord. However, it doesn't address wages or every aspect of the working conditions of garment workers. So its impact is quite limited. So yeah, I would say no, I don't think we've come a long enough way. There's more conversation about ethical and sustainable fashion within the industry and amongst consumers. But I think greenwashing brands are actually dominating those conversations and almost co-opting an entire movement. People are shopping more than ever. And while there have been wins for certain garment worker unions, the status quo is still that fashion continues to exploit garment workers and pollute the environment by overproducing clothes and pushing consumption. Kourtney Kardashian isn't going to save the planet by being Pretty Little Things sustainability ambassador. Coach is not going to save the planet by launching their sub-brand of bags made of leather offcuts. Like We're not going to shop our way out of this. It's um, system change that we need. I completely agree. Um, and I have a follow up question for you, but I always am just caught with the irony of, I just think a general capitalist message that shopping aware of every problem is the solution, you know, whether it be body confidence, like buy this product to make yourself feel better or in the case of fashion, right? Like empowerment through purchasing a new item and but it's okay because this one's recycled polyester or you know god knows what um but what other things should we be looking out for as consumers when you know brands are trying to greenwash and in regard to solutions is just opting out the best way so in terms of greenwashing i think often brands do it obviously to seem environmentally friendly that's what greenwashing is but also to hide other unethical things that they're doing like for example not paying workers living wages generally i think we can't trust what brands say unless they provide evidence regardless of how much they project a positive and inclusive ethos brands often do that they try to trick you into thinking that they care about women because they make clothes for women but they obviously don't if they're not paying the ones who are making the clothes. After I did the boohoo action, I had the press officer emailing me about things I'd said about the brand on social media and things that I was planning to say in an article I was writing, but he couldn't provide evidence to disprove most of what I had said. And it doesn't take that much critical thinking or someone like me who is up to date and informed about what's going on in fashion to decide a brand is conducting business unethically when point blank they won't or even can't answer the questions you have about who made their clothes and where. Another example is I messaged a brand on Instagram to ask if their clothes are ethically made and they responded saying they paid all their workers so I followed up asking if they 
paid them living wages and they read and ignored the message. If that brand paid their workers a living wage, they would have been happy to tell me all about it, but instead left me in the dark and that gave me my answer. Then beyond worker treatment and wages, sustainability is a bit more complex. I personally opt for secondhand first as I don't have to think or research as much about ethics and sustainability to feel comfortable making purchases. But if I feel I have to buy new, I try to only buy clothing made of natural fibers like cotton and linen. And preferably the garments should be 100% that one fiber as that's the only way fabric can be properly recycled. And then also if you have chosen um, natural fibers, so for example, 100% cotton, theoretically that can be composted, although I don't think you should be composting your clothes. I feel like you should be able to mend them enough or um, repurpose them enough that you don't get to that point. But yeah, I think about fabrics and if I'm buying new, I do ask about living wages. Uh, but there's just like a few brands that I go back to mainly for things like socks and underwear and shoes that I don't really want to purchase secondhand. Uh, I remember asking um, my friends once about why they, you know, choose to shop for fast fashion brands. And often, you know, you get the retort of it's just so much cheaper or like it's just easier. You know, there's a sense of privilege of being able to shop secondhand or spending your time sourcing good quality materials how do you approach that argument of um fast fashion or like opting out of fast fashion being a privilege um I think opting out of it completely is definitely a privilege it was pretty easy for me to do it I had quite a full wardrobe I still have items of clothing that I've had for 10 years I have clothes I remember wearing to sixth form. Um, so yeah, I had enough of a wardrobe that it was pretty easy to opt out of fast fashion. Um, I think it's about shifting your mindset about how many clothes you have and how many you should buy because often the comments that you see on social media posts about fast fashion being unethical come from a place where people seem to think it's a human right to buy a lot of clothes, but it's not a right to buy a new outfit for every event that you have or to buy a new wardrobe for every holiday you go on. And you hear this type of language a lot from influencers who are preparing for a trip and they act like they haven't shown you every item of clothing <laughs> they've ever bought as if like... Their followers don't know that they have loads of clothes that are perfectly suitable for the holiday that they're about to go on. So there's a big um, mindset kind of defect, I would say, um, that causes those kinds of comments or that type of attitude towards fast fashion. But of course, if you're a certain size um, or you don't live in an area where you have secondhand shops available to you, it can be very difficult to find secondhand clothes but I think if you have your basics covered it shouldn't be much of an issue like I love different styles of clothing I wear a lot of color and a lot of print but I can be fine buying like one item of clothing every month or like a couple of items of clothing here and there and it's not really a big deal so there is certainly a privilege associated with it I live 
in a city. I already had a big wardrobe. I live within walking distance of secondhand clothing options. Size isn't that much of an issue for me. I would say I'm like straight sized and I like wearing oversized clothing. So I don't have much of a problem. But I do think most of the time the people making that argument about fast fashion being cheaper and more accessible just want to continue consuming a lot of clothes and don't want to face the fact that they have enough clothing already or that they don't need to buy as much as they would like to buy. Yeah, 100%. And I um, spoke to a friend once about how she she kind of works in the fashion industry. And she talks about how um, Gen Z are some of the most value based consumers, but they're also the biggest consumers and the most likely to purchase garments, especially. Um, and yeah, there's just a certain sense of irony of like how everyone knows about these issues, but people are just happy to ignore them. Why do you think that is? And also as a complete side, based on what you were saying, I just wanted to know what your opinion on like the influencer is and the fashion influencer in all of this. So my online friend, Erin, I think she's slowly Erin on Instagram or slowly.erin. She left a comment on one of my Instagram posts once about the attitude behavior gap. So I think that is something that we're seeing a lot, um, like you say, particularly with Gen Z, but in general, a lot of people profess certain values, but don't kind of act in line with them. And it's not always possible. Uh, I think that relates to what I was saying before about privilege. Like even if you think fast fashion is horrible, if you're plus size and you don't have access to secondhand options, maybe you have to opt into fast fashion. It's really mind boggling. I've been asked about this in a couple of other interviews and I don't really know what to say. Like I was saying before that people are shopping more than ever, but people are also talking about sustainability more than ever. Brands are mm. being exposed more than ever. So, you know, it's not adding up and I don't really understand why. No, I, I'm the same. I'm boggled, but also like I still feel the pull. Like I just feel like it's so ingrained in us to consume that yeah. despite knowing the problems, it kind of just, I don't know, also because of the disassociation, I feel like something that we haven't explored yet is the the, the fact that a lot of these clothes are made often in the global South, like just so far, or even when they're made within the or you know the uk it still feels like something that's happening like over there as opposed to like something that's happened if this was happening next door to you you would just you know you would never do it yeah um you asked about the influencer so i'll, I'll just oh, yeah and then i'll talk about the disassociation i'm really fascinated by influencer culture i'm quite fascinated by celebrity culture as well so I still follow people on all platforms who don't kind of consume or live um, in a way that's in line with my values. But because, like I say, I love fashion. I love seeing what other people are wearing, how they're styling things. I also love food. I like to see what people are cooking and eating. And I think it's quite natural to just be nosy about what other people are doing and to take inspiration. I think sometimes when I break it down for certain influencers, it does feel like their whole platform and by extension career and livelihood is resting on encouraging people to shop. And that is really uncomfortable. Um, 
and it sort of feels like it's under the guise of being helpful. Uh, I think they use very kind of kind, personable language, like, let me know if you want to link to anything I've shared. And then they're sharing all these affiliate links. And then also, like I was saying before, they pretend like they don't have clothes or, you know, whatever it is, bags, shoes, whatever. They pretend like they don't have stuff already. And so there's just something quite gross about promoting something that they're going to wear once. And like they're saying that they love it and they're so excited to style it when they unbox it. But then you know that next week they're going to be over it. So I just find it kind of deceptive. Like you start to like someone's personality, but I don't know. I think it's, like I said before, quite gross. Um, the way that they kind of trick you into thinking that they're looking out for you, but they're just a business with like a friendly face. And then in terms of the disassoci- disassociation from who makes our clothes and where, etc., I guess that's kind of how fashion, fast fashion in particular, has been so successful by just never talking about who makes the clothes and where. I had a conversation with someone who did some work on sharing the stories of um, Bangladeshi uh, seamsters here in the diaspora. And they use the word invisibilized to talk about how the work of garment workers um, is invisibilized. It's um, it's just completely ignored. We, as general consumers, know about models or celebrities that wear certain clothes or influencers or other people kind of uh, associated with fashion brands except for the people who actually make the clothes. I think the controversy around Boohoo maybe shifted general awareness and conversation about where clothes are made and who makes them. But I've had a lot of people through social media tell me that they didn't even know that people made clothes. So I think that's obviously fast fashion being successful at its at its goal of invisibilizing the people who make their clothes so that most consumers don't um, even consider it or um you know, a lot of a lot of consumers might really care about workers being treated well, but if they don't know that workers are even making their clothes, then it's not going to be a thought that crosses their mind. Yeah, um, I, I completely agree. And also, I know we keep jumping back and forth, but also fascinated by parasocial relationships and like that, like friendification. I just came up with that word, but you know what I mean? Like, it's like that. You like think you're on or like I always see comments and it's like, oh, it's like I'm on FaceTime with you. Like it's and I'm like, well, they're not, you know, as you said, this is a business like it it pays them a lot for a lot of influence. They make a lot of money by being a friendly face and like, you know, that de-influencing trend, which wasn't de-influencing. It was influencing. It was it was literally the same thing, but with like a nicer tone to it you know like oh this is what not to buy but also this is what you should buy at the same time I think actually the de-influencing thing um got a bit got quite misconstrued online I think its origins are actually not the opposite of influencing and 
I'm not really able to articulate it properly, but I think it's more of a critique on influencers. And if you want to learn more, the person to follow is the Rogue Essentials. I think her name is Heidi. She's on Instagram and on TikTok. And she does an incredible job at talking about the fashion system. And she actually started a Substack. I think it's called de-influencing to kind of mm. um, refocus the conversation on what de-influencing actually is and not just like the opposite of telling people to buy stuff. Yeah, friends also tell you not to do stupid things. Like sometimes when I go shopping with friends, um, I might ask like, do you want me to enable you or do you want me to try and talk you out of buying stuff? Um, I have really strong willpower, so I usually don't need a friend to like tell me to calm down or whatever but in general in friendships in good friendships you also try to stop each other from doing silly things or you talk back and forth about a certain decision it's not just like encouraging you to spend your money on things that you don't need yeah no 100% and that's what the relationship in those parasocial relationships are missing right it's like you might care so much about this person but this person has 100,000 followers and they don't know that you exist but you still care for them it's just it's it's so interesting to me especially with like the ability to persuade someone to consume like but people have always loved recommendations so I don't know I think because of the friendification as you say Mm -hmm. of influencers and the way that they seem so personable people forget about how much money they make and I think that is also part of the deception that I was talking about earlier when it comes to encouraging consumption they might earn hundreds of thousands or millions of pounds doing their job as an influencer so they can buy all of that stuff that they're buying or get it for free but it doesn't really seem fair to be um encouraging the same type of consumption from people who earn a lot less and also don't live a lifestyle where they are gaining followers or securing further partnerships by photographing themselves dressed in a certain way another thing that i noticed from a lot of influencers who purchase a lot of luxury fashion, uh, shoes, bags, clothes, etc. They're purchasing a lot of stuff that the everyday person simply can't wear mm. um, stepping out of the house. And some of these people, you know, they vlog their lives, but you never see them step foot on public transport. And they're buying these um, as mini, mini Kellys that cost tens of thousands of pounds, but they can't fit their phone in it. And especially as women, I don't think it's ethical to be promoting bags that can't keep your most valuable items <laughs> in them or to be promoting shoes that you can't walk in. Like it's not safe for women not to be able to secure their valuable items and to be able to like not to be able to walk properly um so yes i think influencer culture has also created this um generated this idea that you can you can buy and own 
clothes and shoes and bags that are just for like wearing and posing in and not for living in and working Mm. in and doing normal life in it's a hard one yeah it's a lot being online Oh, definitely. So let's move away slightly from the remit of fast fashion and more, I guess, into like feminism, modern day feminism, as we know it now. You've spoken a lot about um, or spoken quite critically about International Women's Day and the issues that you have with it. I was so when I read it, I was so interested in everything you were saying. So, yeah, can you can you share a bit more about that? Yeah. Something I find difficult about doing work online around climate and social justice issues is a general lack of understanding about how injustice is so deeply embedded in our world order and there's no quick fix for any of it. Like I was saying before, we can't shop our way out of these issues. And I feel like online activity on International Women's Day really epitomizes that when it comes to gender inequity brands corporatize gender issues and individuals I feel trivialize them brands that are often built on the exploitation of women use this day to push more product and make more profit in place of addressing the inequities they perpetuate and sharing wealth individuals celebrate their mums partners sisters as the strongest women they know in place of advocating for the most marginalized women, so those affected by forced labor, harmful practices like FGM, climate disaster, etc. I just find it all very light touch, corporate, and quite apolitical. It's great to celebrate women, but I think we do them a disservice by not, for example, talking about how colonization imposed certain gender norms on colonized people and determine the distribution of global wealth and power, or how voting for far-right governments harms women. I just think the day could be used so much better, but also I don't necessarily think that we should be crowding a specific day with a lot of events or online initiatives about a certain issue. Uh, I haven't read any studies about whether that kind of thing actually works, whether International Women's Day or, for example, Earth Day. Like, I don't know if events and activities planned around Earth Day actually lead to any positive outcome or not. But obviously, the ideal scenario is that everyone is just like a good person and holding corporations and governments to account. That's a very positive outlook. I'm glad that you have that positive outlook. I'm a bit more of a, are you a bit more cynical, really? I am quite cynical, yeah. Definitely more of a realist. Mm, definitely. And as you were saying that, I just, the thought that kept going through my mind was like, man, capitalism just got its hands on any any activism issue you know you have like the pink dollar for example where brands will just like automatically for a month you know for pride month just like decide that they're the most lgbt you know favored brand and that you should buy this now um but again it's just a marketing campaign it's they you know how many of the LGBTQ charities they actually support? What does what do they actually do to help people? Probably nothing. Again, allegedly. I don't know. <laughs> this follows on. Do you think like the 
the solution in general, I always keep coming back to this, is like just to be just generally more anti-capitalist. Do you think that would help? I'm not sure I know what it really means to be anti-capitalist, nor do I think it's really possible under mm-hmm. a capitalist system. But I would say the point is to understand the root causes of the justice issues we care about and the privileges we have so that we don't talk about marginalized people or less privileged communities as if they're randomly poor and less progressive. It's more complicated than that. And this is also what I find really frustrating about being online is just the lack of nuance around certain conversations I don't want to hear about overpopulation being the cause of climate change. I'm just so over it. And I don't want to hear that it's like because of overpopulation in South Asia that garment workers are exploited. Like that just doesn't add up and it's just not good enough. Like it's not good enough for people to perpetuate these kind of narratives. It's not that hard to like just learn a bit about history and and how the world works definitely i have two thoughts one completely agree with the overpopulation thing because i mean i know that there's a lot of contention about individualized carbon footprints but nonetheless if we take that concept um people in you know larger larger regions of the world africa is much bigger than europe is and they're still consuming Mm. and still producing a lot you know what I mean like it's always directed somewhere else and the problems never looked inwards um and the other thing that I had oh no I've lost my thought now well it's incredible that the overpopulation narrative when it comes to climate change is as popular as it is considering what you've just said like if you just look at the numbers which would take a couple of minutes like you'd completely disprove that idea yeah, it goes back to what I was saying about the lack of nuance. It's not just lack of nuance, it's just like lack of knowledge and there's such a like laziness around just looking things up. Mm-hmm. No, but my other point was that like the binary, the algorithm favors the binaries, right? It's so much more entertaining or it's going to keep people online a lot more if they're outraged or if they're fighting someone because they're outraged. And then as you write, like Twitter doesn't have space for nuance. You know, Instagram comments don't have space for nuance. I'm sure if someone made a comment and you sat down and you spoke with them, you could find a middle ground, but you just can't do that online, nor is it encouraged. It's encouraged to, yeah, keep you outraged, to like cause as much chaos as possible so that people just stay on the app. Mm. But again, I'm cynical, so... (laughs) Maybe I'm wrong, <laughs> but moving forward to a more positive note as we wrap up, um, can you talk more about what's in the pipeline for you, what you're getting up to, what we can look forward to? Yeah, so with this break that I have this summer from uni, I'm focusing on launching a social enterprise called Ahista Stories, where I curate events and media on South Asian sustainable fashion. Ahista means slow in Urdu, and I really want to celebrate the ancient production techniques and cultural practices like sharing and upcycling clothes that champion slow fashion and are indigenous to South Asia. 
a lot of conversation around sustainable fashion centers, around innovation, especially here in the global north in big cities where we're quite removed from any semblance of sharing economies. So I kind of wanted to raise awareness about how there's so much to learn about sustainability from the rich heritage of South Asia. I also wanted to bridge the gap between sustainable fashion events that focus a lot on brands and shopping ethically and activities in the climate justice and workers' rights space that maybe aren't as colourful and joyful as the fashion events by curating multiple panels, mending workshops and a marketplace of sustainable brands at our first event in London in October, people will be able to come and learn about the fashion system and what they can do to change it, as well as purchase ethically made goods and learn the stories behind how they're made. So it's really important to me that all of that is happening under one umbrella and a survey that I conducted to gauge interest in South Asian sustainable fashion in general, but also the event, really showed me that we need this because in questions about the panel discussions, some people were commenting like, we need to move beyond talking, like we just need to know like where to shop or how to mend our clothes. And that um, showed me that there really is a lack of understanding of the fashion system and how we can't change it just through those individual actions. That's super exciting. How has the process been for you? Um, I guess it's been quite slow because I've been doing it alone whilst I've been studying. Mm. And like I said, I recently submitted my final assignments for the year. So it's definitely going to pick up a lot. I'm really excited about it, but it's also quite overwhelming. And I think regardless of the lead up to the first event and what happens afterwards in terms of whether I continue doing events or not, I think that day will be amazing. Um, it'll feel like the culmination of, of years of hard work, to be honest. Um, but I would also like this to be more of like a sustainable career move. So when I think about now I'm halfway through my masters and I have a year left I am thinking about like is this going to be a proper thing that I'm doing on mm. a time or full-time basis when I graduate I don't know but I really hope that I can raise enough funds and make enough of a profit in our first event to be able to um, really establish it as a proper um, career path and source of income I hope you do. And I'm, I'm sure that you can. How can people get involved? Is there a way that we can like follow updates yet? Or... So you can follow me on Instagram. Um, it's Zainab, Z-A-I-N-A-B dot slow dot fashion. I do have an Instagram account for Ahis the Story. So you can follow it. There's nothing on it. Um, <laughs> but it's A-H-I-S-T-A dot stories. There's nothing on it at the moment. Well, at least when we're recording, I don't know when this is going to be published. Maybe there'll be something on it by the time this is published. But yeah, just go follow over there. Um, yeah, to keep up to date with what's going on. Perfect. And as my final question, I wanted to ask you what impression you'd like to leave on the world. This makes me feel quite shy because I think it's quite... <laughs> self-indulgent but I'm not really bothered about 
leaving an impression as an individual on people. And I think that comes from being God-fearing as well. But I do want to leave the world better than I came into it. So that's like my main uh, purpose or goal. And I can already see that my work has helped in small ways to shift mindsets and change habits when it comes to the consumption of fashion. So I try to keep in mind that um, the idea of like each grain of sand making a big difference. Um, I might not leave this world knowing I made an impression, but I'll have some kind of legacy, I think. Yeah, definitely. That's amazing. And is there anything else that you want to direct people to um, before we sign off? Definitely go and follow It's Freezing in LA on social media. We recently relaunched, so we're doing things a little bit differently. I edited an article for the upcoming issue recently. I'm not sure exactly when it's going to come out, um, but it should be in the next couple of months. So definitely look out for that, especially if you like print journalism, because it's going to be a print issue that will be coming out. And it's really nice to get your hands on something physical that you can keep. Nice, definitely. Well, thank you so, so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you so much again to Zenab for joining me for this conversation. If you liked it, you can follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your, po- listen to your podcasts. And please rate us five stars and share with your friends or share on social media. I will repost them all. It really helps me out. Um, yeah, thank you again and have a lovely week and I will see you next time. Lots of love. Bye. <laughs>